Good morning, Saints. So before I get into the message, just a couple of preliminary things. One, we have a uh, special guest with us this morning. Actually, she's been here before. She's never been here on the outside before. Uh, Cruz and Amy's new little one, Miriam Catherine, and actually Ruth Harnagel, I think, is holding her back there. So. Uh, also, I didn't get the, uh, the note to Dan, so I'm just going to make a quick announcement. That is that there's going to be our annual community Thanksgiving service. It will be three weeks from today, uh, Sunday afternoon, 2 o'clock at the Civic Center. Um, and so we're encouraging you to participate. It'll be 2 o'clock on the 18th of November. And uh, one other thing that I want to mention before I get into this, and that is that I remember when I was a kid that one, one time my uh, sister called me a pain in the neck. Um, <laughs> I never really realized how bad that was until Friday when I got this really serious pain in the neck. So if, I, uh, if I'm doing this instead of turning my head, you'll understand, okay? I just want to ma- put everybody at ease like, okay, there is something wrong, so yeah. And, okay, good. So this morning I want to look at a very familiar verse. It's from Romans chapter 6, verse 11, Romans 6, 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Andrew, can you give me that photograph, that next slide? Yeah, that's it. Uh, By the way, there's only two slides in my PowerPoint this morning. You saw both of them now, okay? Um, You got the notes, though, so that's the good thing. So what can you tell me about these two pictures? They're facing each other. That's good. Yellow coat. They are exactly uh, the same people taken at the same moment from different angles. And the reason I'm showing you that has nothing to do with the sermon, except, well, it really does, but uh, it's that what we're going to do is we're going to look at this verse. You know, if you see it from different angles, it looks like two different, totally different settings, doesn't it? Um, but that's what, what we're going to do. We're going to look at the verse from different angles this morning, and hopefully by the time that we're done, then we're going to have a very different perspective on it. That's good. You can get rid of that now, Andrew. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we indeed look at your word this morning, that you would cause our hearts and our minds to be open to what you want to do. God, we we don't want to just hear some nice words, but instead we want to be altered and changed by you, by your Holy Spirit, by your Holy Word at work within us. And so we're inviting you right now to have your way in our hearts, in our minds, and in our lives. Amen. In the 14th century, in the land now known as Belgium, there was a duke named Reynold III. And Reynold uh, apparently was a very, very large man and was often referred to probably behind his back by a Latin nickname, Crassus, which means the fat. And Reynold had an ongoing dispute with his younger brother, Edward, and it finally got to the point where Edward revolted and uh, led a revolt and uh, actually took over the castle and the lands. But Edward didn't kill Reynold. Instead, he built a room inside of the castle that had windows and a door of almost normal size and said that when Reynold could get out of that room, he could have his title and his lands back. Well... That didn't work because Reynold was a very, very large man and he couldn't get out. So theoretically, it should have been fairly simple, just diet and get out of there. But Edward knew his brother really well. In fact, he knew his brother's weaknesses really well. And so he daily sent trays of delicious foods to Reynold. And so not only did he not diet and lose weight, he actually gained weight. 
Reynold was in that room for more than 10 years, and the only reason he got out was because his brother Edward died in battle. But by that time, his own health was so compromised that uh, it was less than a year later that Reynold himself died. He had been a prisoner to his own appetite. If he really wanted to, he could have left that prison, but his own actions kept him stuck there. In the book of Romans, we are told that mankind has been imprisoned as well. And in the same way that Reynold was initially confined by the actions of a relative, guess what? You and I were also confined by the, by the actions of a relative. His name was Adam. Romans 5.12, it says, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Almost since the dawn of time, sin has kept mankind in prison. It has held us captive. Now, you will never hear that idea from the world. The world will tell you that if we can just be free from God, if we can just do whatever we want, then we'll have real freedom. We won't be enslaved to anything. But the Bible indicates that everybody is a slave and that mankind in general is enslaved to sin. Great story I came across recently. A, a dad and little boy were out in their yard, uh, sunny summer afternoon. Dad's going to do some yard work. And so he wants to make sure that little four-year-old Kevin is safe. And so he kneels down next to four-year-old Kevin and says, Kevin, I'm going to do some yard work. I want to make sure that you're safe. So here's the parameters. You can, you can play in our front yard if you want to. You can go next door to your friend and play in his front yard if you want to. You can go to the backyard and swing on your swing if you want to. You can go inside the house. Mom's there. You can play inside there. Or you can just stay right here and watch me work. Those are all things that you have my permission to do. But what you can't do is go out into the street because if you go out into the street, it's dangerous. I don't want you to do that. I want you to stay away from the street. Do you understand what I'm saying? And Kevin nods his head and so dad lets him go. And Kevin immediately runs over to the curb, puts one foot into the street, turns and smiles at his father. My guess is that some of you could tell me similar stories about some of your kids when they were younger or maybe your own story. If you don't think that mankind is enslaved to sin, you're living in a fantasy world someplace. But I want to look at this Romans 6.11 passage and see what, what God would say to us about that whole idea of being enslaved to sin. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now I think if we really want to understand this passage that we need to understand the context of where it's coming from. And so I wanna, I, what we're going to do before I get into the actual preaching, we're going to do a little Bible study here together, okay? We're going to kind of lay some foundation. And so we're going to go back to the previous chapter, chapter 5. Uh, Paul establishes our, our standing before God. I think Pastor Nick would have referred to it as our legal standing before God. In Romans 5, we find out that sin and death came into the world through Adam, but uh, that it wasn't just him. It, it kind of carried on, if you will, into all of us. We all have sinned ultimately. That's that verse that we just read in verse 12. But if you keep reading, we find out that, that yes, sin and death came through Adam, but in the same way, righteousness and life came through Jesus Christ. Verses 15 and 16, but the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. 
And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, for the judgment following the one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Judgment and condemnation came through Adam, but what happened? Righteousness and justification came through Christ. Okay, keep reading verse 17. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Although those who are, are in, in Adam are ruled by death, on the other hand, in Christ, we get to rule in life. I mean, that's an amazing statement right there. But Paul keeps hammering this idea home over and over, 18 and 19, therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Adam's sin caused the, the whole lot of us, not a whole lot of us, but the whole lot of us to become disobedient, but Jesus' sacrifice did the opposite. It gave us the option of becoming obedient, of becoming righteous because of what Jesus did. In the last two verses of that chapter, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So even though the law seems to augment or even intensify sinfulness, grace, if I can say it this way, outruns sin. That means that we who were doomed to condemnation have now been granted eternal life. We, we have been forgiven. And so if you want to summarize this section, we can say that, that though we, you and I, were dead in our sins, Jesus came and brought us not only forgiveness, but also eternal life with the Father. So all that brings us to chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we, who died, uh, to sin, still live in it. We who died to sin still live in it. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, if you understand what Paul is saying here in these first few verses, he's refuting the idea that apparently some people had put forward back in his day that his teaching, that, that God justifies the ungodly by, by grace alone, through faith alone, not on any merit of their own, that that kind of teaching is going to cause more sin to happen. And he's saying, no, no, no. In essence, he's demonstrating that us being, being bound together with Christ, that we being intrinsically intertwined with him is going to push aside any idea of us having intentional ongoing sin in our life. If we really recognize that truth, it's going to negate that idea. And so... All of that is true, but here's the deal. Paul also recognizes that you and I are prone to forget our new position in Christ. I saw that smile, Karen Martin. And since that's the foundation, since that's really the foundation for holy living, then he hammers this idea home for the rest of the verses here. In verse 4, he says that our, our baptism depicts our, our, our spiritual uh, our spiritual union really with Christ in his death and resurrection. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So the, so the practical result of us being buried with Christ is that we now get to walk in newness of life. We're different people, okay? 
Verse 5, it starts off with the word for at the beginning. So he's kind of supporting, explaining what he's just said. For if we have been united with him in, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, I think this is where some people begin to miss the connection because the beginning of verse 5 Really, he goes on and explains that first half. And you understand that the chapter and verse numbers were not in the original context, all right? Just want to make sure we got that, okay? So the first half of verse 5, what we call verse 5 here, is really explained in verses 6 and 7. So the first half of verse 5, it says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, got that? 6 and 7, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. He's telling us that, that we've been united with Christ in his death so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. We've been freed from that. And then if you follow that idea, the second half of verse 5 is really expounded upon in verses 8, 9, and 10. Second half of verse 5, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Verse 8 and following. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So he's showing us that, that we will live with Christ. Really, he's explaining the implications of, of Christ's death and resurrection so that we will understand the fullness of what our union with him really means. We're dead to sin. We're dead to this world, but alive to Christ Jesus in his forgiveness. Okay, everybody following me so far? Okay, so that brings us to, to uh, verse 11, where Paul really, he, he takes everything that we've just heard, just read there, and he applies it to you and me. So, so he's referring back to what he just said, all right? So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Some of you might be more familiar with the, uh, the King James Version. Likewise, reckon ye yourselves also to be, you could sing it with me, dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Christ Je Jesus Christ our Lord. The, the dictionary definition of reckon is to establish, establish by counting or calculation. The, the Greek word, one of the reference things that I, I read said that it has the implication of taking an inventory. And as soon as I read that, it really struck me because I thought back to places where I've worked in the past where we had to take an inventory. If you've ever worked in a, a store or a warehouse or something like that where you have to take maybe an annual inventory or something like that, that's this is kind of the idea that we're getting here. But, but let me explain it. Like the, the inventory is very, very important. Have you ever gone shopping and week after week the store is out of a certain thing? I didn't actually mention Walmart, all right? Um, sorry. And often that is an inventory problem because the computer says that those things are there and so it won't reorder. But if you go to the shelf, guess what? It ain't there. And so those things need to be reconciled. They need to be brought into alignment that we need to do the inventory to find out they really aren't and then change the computer. It's lining up with the facts. And that's the picture that we see here in Romans 6. What it seems like in our life needs to be reckoned with what really is, the actual facts. You following me? 
Actually, that verb reckon in the Greek is, is a little bit broader than just an inventory. It's actually a word that has to do with mathematics and accounting. It describes what a, what a bookkeeper does when they take a whole line of numbers and add them up and then apply it to the, the correct account. So in a general sense, reckoning or considering if in different uh, translations is thinking. It's using reason and logic to draw conclusions from the facts that are known. In fact, the, uh, the New American Standard New Testament Greek lexicon makes an interesting observation. This word deals with reality. If I logizomai, that's the transliteration of the, the Greek word, if I reckon that my bank book has $25 in it, it has $25 in it, otherwise I'm deceiving myself. The word refers to the facts, not suppositions. So you and I need to reckon our lives with the fact that we have been forgiven, that we are walking in newness of life, that we do not have sin in our life because Jesus took it. Are you following me? That same Greek word is used lots of times in the New Testament, especially in the, in the book of Romans. Romans 2.26, so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? It could be counted to him. We could say it that way. Same kind of thing. Romans 8.18, for I reckon, the King James Version, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Paul is saying, I'm, I'm looking at the facts. I'm tallying up what I see here as obvious and clear facts, and I am reckon, reckoning the fact that what we got here ain't nothing compared to what we got there. Are you with me? He, he's, he's saying, yeah, this, this, this is true. This is really true. And so I'm, I'm making a, a, a connection there. I'm taking, taking what I know to be fact, and I'm seeing how it affects everything else. 1 Corinthians 13, 5, same word used in this one. Love keeps no record of wrongs. It's that, it's that idea of tallying up the results. Paul here is saying that we're not supposed to do that with true Christian love, doesn't do that, does not keep track of the, the, the wrongs, all right? But in our Christian walk, we're supposed to look at our life in Christ. We, we look at those facts, and based on those facts, we, we, we reckon, we come to uh, an understanding, we stand on the fact, that logical conclusion, that what we've been given is a gift that says we are dead to sin. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, even though everything that I've just said is true, um, there's actually a step beyond just acknowledging the facts, I think. If, if this really is a financial term, an accounting term, then think about it. If Jesus took our sins, then what he has done is he has taken the accounts that we uh, that we were liable for upon himself. All of those past due notices with regards to our sins are now his responsibility, not ours. So when the accuser comes knocking and says, hey, it's time to pay up, we can rightfully and honestly say, that's not my account. You need to talk to Jesus about that one. Are you following me? You know, my, my, uh, my wife and I own our house. Actually, that's not totally true. The bank still owns far too much of it, but we own more than the bank does at this point, which is pretty cool. Um, but over the years, uh, over the years, there have been times where the mortgage company sold our mortgage to another financial institution. Some of you know that you've seen this happen. Okay. Um, and I don't even understand why that happens, but it does. 
But what, practically what that means is whereas we used to pay to these guys over here, now we're paying to those guys over there, okay? They bought it. So after that happens, it, you know, we've gotten the paperwork from these guys saying that everything's done. If these guys come to me and say, hey, you owe us money, I can rightfully and legally say, no, 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 no. It's these guys over here. Are you with me? That, that's what Jesus has done. He has taken our account. We're no longer liable for it. It's his. And, and, and think about this. It, beyond that, beyond the fact that he has taken our account, what he's also done is he's given us his account. So, so whereas you and I were bankrupt, we were beyond bankrupt. We now have $20 million in our account. And please understand, I'm talking about spiritually. All right, don't go out and spend a bunch of money that you don't have because Tom said you did. No, I'm talking about it in a spiritual sense, all right? Think about it like this. God has, has already reckoned the accounts, if you will. From his perspective, this is a done deal. And now he's telling us, you and me, in Romans 6.11, that we need to reckon our accounts with his to have the same set of books that he does, if you will. See, I think all too often, you and I keep a separate ledger. We have a different set of books than what God does. Think about it. If you're in business and you have two sets of books, there's something wrong there. There's something shady going on. There's something not right about that, right? So you and I need to reconcile our bookkeeping with God's. Guess what? His is right. Okay? See, in our minds, we have this tendency to see our sins as being stamped past due. In God's bookkeeping, they're all stamped paid in full. And we need to recognize that. We need to align our bookkeeping with God's so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Okay, another angle. Even though we're supposed to look at the facts, specifically Jesus' death and resurrection, all right, there is, I think, kind of a, a looking past the obvious at the same time. Recently, I've been reading the, the later Psalms, and just the other day I was reading Psalm 141. Verse 2 just struck me. David prays, let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Now think about this for a minute. David knew that prayer is not the same as incense. David has been around long enough to recognize that lifting his hands is not the same as the evening sacrifice. But what he's saying is, let my prayer, let the lifting of my hands be counted as incense, as the evening sacrifice. Let these things be counted as those things. So in the same way, you and I, you and I obviously know that we sin. Anybody here have any doubt about that? We'll do a little lesson later. Okay. Um, and we know from Scripture that because of our sin, we stand condemned before the Father. We do. But Jesus' death and resurrection means that he steps in and says, here, I'll take that for you. You don't need to carry it. I already did. Totally different. What he did is counted to us. 
like the prayer was counted as incense, like the, the lifting of hands was counted as the evening sacrifice. In the same way, Jesus' death and resurrection is counted to us as righteousness. Just like the Bible says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. You know, if you think about it, again, it's that, that bookkeeping idea. It wasn't Abraham that did the righteousness. No, it was counted to him because of his faith. It's the same way with you and me. We haven't done anything deserving of getting off free. We haven't. We certainly didn't earn it, but it was counted to us. It was credited to our account because of what Jesus did. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In a few verses later, Paul is going to tell us something very similar. Uh, he, he says that, that we were once slaves to sin, but now we're slaves to righteousness. That is a, that is a gigantic statement. I mean, if you really think about it, the, the implications of that statement are huge. There is likely not one of us here who would deny that we were once slaves to sin. I mean, that's all too obvious to us. We, we, we probably wouldn't even be in the kingdom of God if we hadn't come to that understanding, okay? But that slave to righteousness part? <coughs> come on, guys, be, be, be honest with me. How many of you honestly feel like you are a slave to righteousness? Does your, does your life, does your, your actions, the, 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 your thinking, the way that you interact with other people, does it really demonstrate that you are a slave to righteousness? I mean, there's probably a few of us here today who would say, well, maybe that person over there might think that, but not me. I too often feel like, a, like I'm still a slave to sin. Kind of like Reynold at the beginning of the message that I talked about. But don't you see, that's exactly what we've been talking about. Even though we have nothing to offer to the equation except debits. All we've got is negative numbers. All we've got is red ink. And yet the fact is that Jesus' account because of his death and resurrection is so massively huge that it far outweighs our debits and we get all of his credits. So again, we need to align our thinking with the facts. The fact is you and I are forgiven. We're free. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let me hit this from a slightly different angle. came across a, a crazy story when I was getting ready for this message about this, uh, this young, recently married man that forgot he was married. Yeah, it actually happened several years ago before there were cell phones. They had just come back from their honeymoon and the next day he went to work and he's like three hours late coming home that night because he went to his mom's house where he'd gone for years, forgot to go home to his bride. Yeah, that, he was probably on the couch that night. Uh, but that kind of thing hopefully is pretty rare in the realm of actual marriage. But you know what? I think it's pretty common for those of us who are married to Christ. We are joined to him as his bride. We are members of his body. We are identified with him in his death and resurrection so that the power of sin has been broken in our lives and yet too often we tend to forget those truths on a regular basis. We tend to not see ourselves as dead to sin. In fact, it can seem like we're very much alive to sin. And that's why Paul uses this accounting term. Consider yourself, reckon yourself dead to sin. It's a, it's a, a deliberate change of focus. 
to make sure that we're looking at the actual facts. Think about it like this. Your, your, your bank account has $1.37 in it. And your bills are, it's not that much, sorry. And your bills are mounting up. You have no way that you can pay for your food or your rent or your electricity or your car or your, your clothing, whatever. Nothing at all. And you have done the math. You've double and triple checked the balance. There is no mistake. You just don't have it. And so you're in trouble. And that's really, in reality, that's the state that you and I, in a spiritual sense, that's where we are. We are bankrupt. On our own, we're bankrupt. But then your, your bank statement comes, and lo and behold, you have enough money for everything and then some. And you didn't do it. You didn't have any wherewithal to get any more money. Somebody put that in, no strings attached. You know, in the natural realm, that could be a rich uncle, but in the spiritual realm, that's what Jesus did for you and for me. And the next month, the same thing happens again, and then the next month again. It just keeps happening over and over and over. His death and resurrection means that you don't have any unpaid bills in the spiritual sense. They're all paid in full, every one of them. Last week, during a, a time of free worship, during one of the songs, Lydia sang spontaneously. She said, we're faultless because we're dressed in your righteousness. She's right. She's exactly right. We have no spiritual debts. We are perfect in the sight of God. 2 Corinthians 5 says that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. You and I are the righteousness of God. We stand holy and perfect before him without sin. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Okay, one more angle here. Very next chapter, chapter 7 of Romans, Paul talks about the not doing the things that he wants to do, doing the things that he doesn't want to do. He's, he's, he's grappling with that sinful nature thing, okay? You guys know what I'm talking about. And then he makes an amazing statement, Romans 7, 7, 17. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. I, as a new creation, as a new creature in Christ, I don't sin. Now don't think I'm going wacko on you or anything like that. When I do sin, it's not really me. Or to be more accurate, it's not the real me. It's sin that's lying within me. Within me. It's sin dwelling in me. Now you might be sitting there thinking, wait a minute, Tom, I, I know I sinned this morning. Are you telling me I didn't? Well, if you want to be really honest with Scripture, yes. And I know that putting those two things together in our brain, that doesn't make a lot of sense to us. And that's why Romans 6.11 is in there. Consider yourself dead to sin. Reckon it. See it. But alive to God. In fact, Paul goes, in, in, this, in this verse, I, I happened across this after I was mostly done with the, the, the message. He says, you must consider yourself dead to sin. This isn't just a suggestion. This is a pretty 
I think, strong command here he's giving us. Now, the King James uses the word dead indeed to sin. You are dead indeed. It's a strong, different, uh, you know, when you translate to or from English, often word order gets moved around. You guys get that, okay? So, but either way, there's, there, there's an emphaticness. Is that a good word, Connie? <laughs> there's an emphaticness to what's being said here. You must, you are dead indeed to sin. You've got to see that as being a done deal. Reckon it, see it. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, you are dead to sin. And the more that we view ourselves like that, the more that we make that transaction, make that, that vision, make that, that reckoning, that considering, guess what's going to happen? the more we line our thinking up with the truth of God's word, then we're going to be more and more conformed into that truth. We're going to be more and more conformed into his image because it's reality. So you, you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that you have made us dead to sin. And though we, we don't see that every day, Lord, we want to more and more. We want to, to line up our thinking with your reality, with the facts. We, we, we don't want to have a, a second set of, of books that show different entries than what you have. Lord, we want our thinking to line up with yours. And so we're asking that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit at work within us, by the power of your word at work within us, help us more and more day by day to reckon ourselves, to consider ourselves as dead to sin, but alive to you. Lord, may we see that vision more and more clearly in our lives. Amen.